We're taking another little break from our sermon series through the Ten Commandments, which we will finish in the the coming weeks. Uh, This morning we're going to be in Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through chapter 4, verse 3. This uh, sermon is in accordance with the conference that we had uh, yesterday. And you will be able to hopefully soon be able to get access uh, to the audio and perhaps the video of that conference. Before we read together God's holy and errant word, let us turn to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would now send us your Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. For we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, hear the word of the Lord. It is written. Brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is their destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We in the church in America have experienced many, many years of blessing, not only in terms of freedom to practice our faith, but we have also enjoyed a culture around us that, at least in theory, shared many of our values and morals. But as Bob Dylan sang, the times they are a-changing. I don't need to tell you that there has been a significant shift in our culture here in America in the past decade, and the church has moved from being a respected institution at the heart of many communities to being dismissed and even openly reviled in some places. And this is especially the case for Christians and churches who hold traditional and orthodox beliefs that are in accordance with Scripture. Living as a Christian in America is becoming increasingly more difficult. Now, I don't want to exaggerate this point or act as though we're facing some sort of extreme persecution. To insinuate that, we would show a total lack of respect for Christians and other parts of the world who are experiencing real persecution. 
There are Christians in other parts of the world who are daily facing the threat of imprisonment, torture, and even death. And we need to be praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ in those areas. And we need to acknowledge that we in America are not at that point. We are nowhere near that point. And nevertheless, there is a growing hostility to the gospel here. So the question is, are we prepared for the world we now face and the significant challenges that perhaps lie ahead of us? Are we prepared to more than ever accept and live into our calling as a really peculiar people, aliens and strangers in this world? I've read and heard many concerns being expressed over the past couple years that the church in America is not prepared. There's a fear among some that we are not prepared to stand steadfast in the faith in the face of a culture where it is no longer respectable or fashionable or convenient to be a true believer in Jesus Christ and where it might actually come at a cultural cost to pick up our cross and follow the Lord Jesus. There is a deep concern that the church has perhaps grown too comfortable, that we are too used to fitting in to the culture around us, and that we've been lulled to sleep by this cultural Christianity that's dominated America for so long in which so many Christians lived in the illusion that there wasn't any difference between living the Christian life and living the American life. But it becomes harder and harder to deny the reality that living a distinctly Christian life will set us at odds with the culture around us. Or if we want to think about this in another way, that attempting to live in a way that we comfortably fit in with the culture around us will now more than ever be in opposition to the life Christians are called to live in Scripture. In fact, simply living in a manner consistent with what is presented in Scripture as a normal Christian life will be considered by many to be extremist. In other words, you might not merely be considered strange to live according to biblical principles and standards. You might even be considered fanatical. So now what? Now what for a church that is becoming noticeably marginalized? Where it is now understood that discipleship means differentiation from the world. Church? Are you ready to face these challenges? Are you ready to embrace your calling as a peculiar people? Or will the fears that have been expressed about our failure to stand firm be realized in us? I hope that we can answer confidently that our hope is in the Lord. That our trust is in God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And in his unfailing word, which assures us that God provides us with the strength necessary to overcome any and all challenges that threaten to undo us in our faith. But I know this to be true. If we are to prove ourselves equipped 
to face the challenges that now confront us at this moment in our cultural context, then we must not only stand firm in our faith, but we must stand united. Our preparedness requires a togetherness, a cohesiveness of mind and spirit. And Paul's letter to the church in Philippi is one of the best places for us to get a picture of the unity that the church is called to in Scripture. You see, unity is a central theme in Philippians. And it is indeed an important message for the Philippians to be hearing. If you know anything about the church in Philippi, then you know Philippi was not exactly the most welcoming place for the Christians. We find in Acts 16 that Paul and Silas were beaten and thrown into prison in Philippi for disrupting the local marketplace by the proclamation of the gospel. And after being released from prison, they were run out of town. So this tells us something of the cultural context the church faced in Philippi. It was an environment that was hostile to the gospel. And Paul recognizes that unity is vital for the church in this sort of environment which means it is vital to our context as well. Now, I'm going to do something that I rarely do. I'm going to highlight in this passage three aspects which the church is encouraged to have unity in. This is going to be a three-point sermon. Are you ready? I know you're shocked. It is a miracle. So first, this should help you take notes. First, Paul encourages the church to have unity both in practice and in belief in her moral convictions. The church is to have unity both in belief and in practice in her moral convictions. One of the first things that we see to see in this passage is Paul calling the church to join together in imitating him and to, quote, keep their eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now, before we get all bent around the axle, because this instruction by Paul seems to be filled with prideful arrogance, we need to understand what's going on here. The Philippians did not have a Bible like we do. They couldn't easily sit down and read all about the life of Jesus and the example he left for us to follow. So Paul can't simply say to them, imitate Christ. They don't have a full picture of what that means. What they have is Paul and others like him who are teaching them the gospel and living it out before them. Those who have put on Christ and are providing for them a godly example. What they know of the Christian faith, they have learned from those who have brought it to them. So what Paul is essentially telling them is what he told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. In other words, insofar as I imitate Christ, you should imitate me. And notice here that Paul has not only commended his own living to them, he has commended all who walk according to this example. Earlier in the letter, he has lifted before them Timothy and Epaphroditus in particular. And what these men exemplify is humility and selflessness and a courage to suffer for the sake of the gospel. These are characteristics of a godly life that Paul has gone to great lengths in this epistle to instruct the church to adopt. In fact, Paul identifies these characteristics of humility and selflessness 
as essential for unity in the fellowship of the church. But Paul makes clear that what he is more specifically instructing here at the end of Philippians 3 is a certain pattern of life, a unified pattern of life, an ethical standard. He's calling for them to live according to a set of moral convictions which are consistent with the faith they have in Jesus Christ. No longer, no longer were they to live as they formerly did as pagans before they were claimed by God in Jesus Christ. They had been by grace called out of this life of living according to the pleasures of the flesh. This is why he contrasts following his example with those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ in verse 18. And he continues, their end is their destruction, their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Don't be like the pagans you formerly were. Set your mind, setting your mind on earthly things. The sinful desires of your flesh, set your mind on Christ. Make him your goal. He is the prize. This is exactly what he's just gotten through telling them in the preceding verses of chapter 3. I press on, he tells them toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So this, in effect, is exactly what he's told the other churches he's written to. Like in his letter to the Colossians, where he writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things on earth. For you have died, and your life has been hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these things, too, you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Paul wants the Philippians then to understand here the importance of being a community that is shaped by moral convictions consistent with the Christian faith and with the hope of a coming glory. He calls them to unity on this point. Now we have a distinct advantage over the Philippians. We have the whole counsel of God revealed through the ages, preserved for us in the Bible. We have God's moral law. We've spent 25 weeks preaching on it. We have scriptures witness to the life of Jesus. We can open up the gospels and read the ways in which Jesus has fulfilled God's moral law and set for us an example to follow him in living in obedience to God through his law. This isn't to say that we shouldn't look to the example of those living around us to help us understand what faithful living looks like in our context, like as Paul called the Philippians to do here. But it is to say that the church community should have very little confusion as to what God requires of us morally. Now, you might feel like this is really obvious. But unfortunately, the church in America in so many ways hasn't been united in its understanding of God's word at the point of morality. As the culture has undergone a moral revolution, the church has acquiesced. Slowly but surely, the church has caved at the points of attack. 
Church, God's word calls us to unity, both in belief and practice in our moral convictions. And we might immediately think of the issue of sexual immorality here. But I hope that we have all seen through our sermon series on the Ten Commandments that it isn't just at the point of human sexuality that the church looks a little too much like the culture that surrounds us. Church, how are we doing at honoring and keeping the Sabbath? Or keeping yourself from gossip and slander and promoting civility in our speech? Or killing our sinful desires? Are we unified in belief, in practice at these points? God calls us to holiness, not simply as individuals, but as a community. He calls us to be striving together for holiness. This is why Paul starts his letter to the Philippians by saying, It is my prayer that you that your love, that is love for God, love for righteousness, may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And this is part of the beauty of the gift God has given us in the fellowship of the saints. That through our unity of moral convictions, we push each other on to love and good deeds. Through our moral unity, we encourage one another to faithfulness. We challenge each other. We provide accountability for one another. This all collapses, though, if we are not unified at this point. So we are to have unity both in belief and practice in our moral convictions. But our unity as a church shouldn't end with our moral convictions. It should spill over into many aspects of our life together as a body. So second, we should have unity in our common life together as a church. We should have unity in our common life together as a church. Now I realize that's a pretty vague statement. So let me put some meat on it. And I want to do that by way of Paul's reminder to the Philippians that they are citizens of heaven in verse 20. Now, this phrase gets thrown around a lot, so let's unpack it in order to understand what it means for our unity as a people of God. For the Philippians, citizenship had a very powerful connotation. You see, Philippi was a colony of Rome, but it had not simply been conquered by Rome and was now under Roman rule and law, it was a city that embraced its Roman identity. It was proud of being a colony of Rome, so much so that it sought to be a miniature Rome. The citizens of Rome in Philippi exemplified the life and culture of Rome in the province of Macedonia. Therefore, it was truly a Roman city a long way from its motherland. The Philippians then got what Paul was saying here. And I think we do too. Every time I've traveled internationally, I've gotten a taste of what it feels like to be a long way from home. I don't just mean that in a physical distance sense. Those of you who have traveled internationally probably understand this as well. When you are in a foreign country, it well feels foreign. 
You don't fit in with your surroundings. And it isn't just the language that's different. The way you dress is different. Your mannerisms are different. Your preferences for food are different. All of these things have been shaped by our home culture. And if you are in a foreign country for any length of time, perhaps living there permanently for business, what do you do? You find those who share your home culture, right? You form close community with them. You live together as Americans in a foreign land to continue to live according to your home culture in order that you might feel more like home. And when we're away from this home culture, we not only miss our home, but we stick out like a sore thumb, don't we? I remember being in Germany several years back. A buddy and I were in a store looking around, and within a few moments of being in the store, the store owner, who had just heard us speak maybe a sentence or two to one another, looked up at us and said with what seemed to be great delight, Oh, you're Americans. What state are you from? Yes, we're from Mississippi. And she replied, ah, steamboats. (laughs) Right. (laughs) She immediately knew we were Americans because everything about us screamed American. And it only took a sentence or two in our southern accents to confirm her suspicions. And she mentioned that our accents were southern. She noticed that. America media is great. When Paul tells us that we are citizens of heaven, he is challenging us to think of all of these things. It isn't just that we are citizens of a kingdom because the king of that kingdom has laid claim over our lives. It's true. And it isn't just that we live under the rule and law of that king. That also is true. We're called to live at unity at that point. But there's so much more to our citizenship, isn't there? There's a culture of that kingdom that we are called to wholeheartedly embrace that touches every aspect of our lives, from the way we speak, to the way that we dress, to the way that we interact with one another. This is what culture is. It's a common set of values and norms and language. Paul challenges us to think about what the culture of heaven is and to set up that culture, albeit in an imperfect and miniature way, here in this foreign land in which we live, to exemplify the culture of our home kingdom to all of our neighbors, even as we long together for our motherland. When people look at us, when people look at us within moments, they should say, oh, you are a Christian. And this culture should be expressly, exceedingly, particularly expressed through our church community. There should be a unified and understood vision of what our common values and norms and language are in our community. And as we think about what that unified vision might look like, I think Charles Spurgeon offers a helpful word. He states that if we are citizens of heaven, then our walk and acts are such as are consistent with our dignity as citizens of heaven. So what might be some aspects of our common church culture that would be befitting of our dignity as citizens of heaven? 
let me suggest a few. We should value worship as a community. John and I harp on this a lot. Worship should be done fervently and should not be missed unless you are seriously ill. If you're out of town, find a church wherever you are. This should be an understood norm in our community. We should value fellowship and seek to love one another well. This means the norm of our community, the norms of our community are that we care in tangible ways for one another, that we pray earnestly for one another, that we seek out fellowship with one another over fellowship with those outside of our church community. This is what aliens in a foreign land do. We should value forgiveness and reconciliation in our community. This means the norm of our church community should be that we don't let issues and offenses stand between members and go unresolved. But instead, we should be seeking and offering forgiveness to one another. I could go on and on. I hope you get the point. Spurgeon continues his thought about our living lives that are consistent with our dignity as citizens of heaven, saying, Among old Romans, when a dastardly action was proposed, it was thought, listen to this, it was thought a sufficient refusal to answer, Romanus sum, I am a Roman. And this needs to be our unified response to the world when we are called to things that are not fitting of our citizenship in heaven. I am a Christian. In doing this, we understand that we're going to stick out like a sore thumb in this culture. We are the Mississippi boy in a German store. But we're not meant to stick out alone. We're meant to do it together. And here's your choice. You can either recognize that you are a stranger here and long evermore for your homeland, or you can seek to resolve your discomfort at being an outsider and live in conformity to the world. Long for home or make this world your home. But beloved, there is only one option that is consistent with our dignity as citizens of heaven. And this idea of living in a manner consistent with our citizenship is one of the reasons why Paul calls out these two individual women in chapter 4, verse 2. He comes, he calls them to come into unity of mind and spirit by sharing values that are consistent with God's kingdom. He doesn't say what exactly is the issue that is going on between these two women, but he pleads with them to come to agreement in the Lord. The point is that it isn't fitting for there to be an argument over something that is clearly a non-essential issue, which threatens to create disunity in the body of Christ. This isn't consistent with the culture of heaven that we are called to embody as its citizens here on earth. So it isn't the subject of the argument that's a problem. It's the means by which it's being argued. He urges them to agree in the Lord. Paul doesn't take sides. What he does is he points them to Christ. If you remember, Paul has earlier in the epistle spent a lot of time and energy talking about the humility of Christ and has appealed to the church to be Christ-minded in this way. Approach one another with humility, even in and especially in disagreements. Rather than approaching each other, claiming to be right, submit yourselves to Christ. And count others more significant than yourselves. 
Paul is telling them that this is the common value that should overrule their disagreement. We should pay careful attention to what this means for us. Two things. First, unity means that we are focused first and foremost on whether or not the manner of our life together is worthy of the gospel of Christ. So what Paul encourages in chapter 1 of his epistle which he follows up by saying to the church that he desires to hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So let me give you a simple example of what this might mean. Dress in our fellowship together. It's a non-essential issue. It doesn't matter what you wear. Scripture doesn't give us some specific prescription here. But would our manner of life together be worthy of the gospel of Christ if we came here dressed immodestly? Would this exemplify the culture of heaven? Would this be loving each other well? Of course not. So we are to share a common value of modesty because this is a way we live lives worthy of the gospel in community together, which helps to guide our decisions of how we will clothe ourselves. Before we put on our clothes, Put on Christ and let that be your guide. The second thing we learn from Paul's comments to Yodia and Syntyche, unity at this point does not mean uniformity. Unity at this point does not mean uniformity. We aren't going to agree on every little thing. We're going to have differences in preference over non-essentials. It's okay. We don't all have to look alike and dress alike and have the same background. We're going to have different gifts and abilities and ways in which we use those gifts and abilities to serve Christ in and through the church. Diversity in this respect within the church is a wonderful thing. It's a gift from God that union in Christ transcends all of these worldly things. But we are called to have unity about those overarching principles of our life together. The body can't be fragmented in going every which way. We can't have a leg going this way and a leg going that way and an arm going this way. We can't just all be doing our own thing and show up together for an hour or two a week. That isn't community. We share a common culture. This is part of the issues we are seeing in our country right now. There's a breakdown of common culture. And the same thing applies to the church. So dearly beloved, do we share a common culture as a church community that points to our citizenship in heaven? And are we boldly living it? Third and finally and briefly, we should have unity as a church community in our witness to the world through service. Paul's issue with the argument between Euodia and Syntyche doesn't just end within the church. We should note that Paul encourages another unknown person to help resolve this issue, mentioning that these women have labored side by side with him in the gospel. He recognizes here and wants us to recognize with him that the purpose of the church is to display to the world the glory of God for the sake of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ that all who are called might repent of their sins and turn to Jesus to be saved. The church is a called-out community. We are called to be different, to be holy. What does Peter tell us? But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim 
the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God intends for us to stick out like a sore thumb. That's why Christ tells the church that she is a city set on a hill. God wants the world to take notice. He wants the world to see in the church the culture of his kingdom, his love, his grace, his mercy, his justice, his goodness, and how these things shape our common life together. This is one of the reasons why unity in these things is so important. So it isn't just a matter of these women who Paul mentions finding agreement in the Lord for the sake of the community itself. It's also for the sake of the community's witness to the world. Church, it's important that we are laboring side by side for the advancement of the gospel in the world. Again, if the parts of the body are going every which way, the body doesn't work very effectively. But when all of our resources within the church are directed toward a common end, guided by the Holy Spirit, then great things are accomplished for God's glory. So dearly beloved, we're facing some challenging days ahead. Unity is essential if the church in America is not only going to survive, but is going to continue to do what God has created and called her to do. To proclaim and demonstrate to the world that Jesus is Lord. And that salvation is available to all who would repent of their sins and cast themselves upon the grace of God offered in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross by placing faith in him. So let me encourage you today to strive to be a community of common convictions, to share a common culture that is founded on our citizenship in heaven and labor together side by side for the advancement of the gospel in the world and to God be all the glory. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, by grace, you have claimed us. You have brought us into union with your Son and brought us into community in the church, the body of Christ. Lord, would you help us? Would you help us to live lives within that community that are worthy of the gospel, that are fitting for our dignity as citizens of your heavenly kingdom? For we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in God.